Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Kim McCoy about waves and beaches. First, wanted to let you know that if you enjoyed this conversation or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. They don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, please do follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Books on Pod. My name is Antonio Sadra. And I am Bob Stickold. We are the authors of When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Ellinger. Hello, readers. Kim McCoy is an oceanographer and adventurer, and the guy responsible for adding to the third edition of one of the most important books ever written about our oceans and shorelines. It's called Waves and Beaches, The Powerful Dynamics of Sea and Coast. Kim, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Trey, for having me. It's a pleasure getting to speak with you. You obviously were a major contributor to the third edition of this wonderful book. How'd you end up taking such a significant role? Well, I had used the first edition of Waves and Beaches when I was in graduate school, when I was first doing coastal wave dynamics. And the name Bascom was well known. However, I never thought that I'd meet him. Fast forward about 20 plus years. I was at a meeting of the Deep Submersible Pilots Association. Of course, that's something everyone attends, right? (laughs) And Willard was talking about underwater archaeology that he was involved in. And I've liked ancient history and stuff like that. So after he finished, uh, I went up to the podium and thanked him and said, I had read Waves and Beaches and blah, blah, blah. And we became friends. And we used to have lunch on Thursdays. And this went on for quite a while. I used to say, lunches with Willard, Thursdays with Willard. Some people described our relationship, actually his girlfriend at the time, his wife was deceased. She said, you are like the son that Willard never had. Hmm. And I said, and he's the mentor that I never had. So there's this sort of father-son relationship that blossomed there. And I was lucky he had done most of the amazing suite of accomplishments in his life. And so he'd accomplished most of the things he wanted to accomplish in life. And I was just starting out. I'm much younger than him, decades younger. And he would give me things to read, ancient history, genetic engineering, all sorts of things. We had a very broad suite of interests. Poetry, we used to recite poetry with one another, mostly sea-related poetry. So he'd feed me with things, and I ate it up. And one day he handed me the second edition of Waves and Beaches and said, read this and tell me what it needs. I was sort of taken aback. I go, me? Tell you what your book needs? And he said, yeah, it's serious. So I took it on. I read through the whole thing and made a bunch of notes and gave my feedback and he liked it. And so that was a transition between being his student and collaborator. And he just reacquired the publication rights from Doubleday, the prior publisher. And he got hit by a car. He was driving a collision and uh, he spent three months in the hospital. I visited him an awful lot, not too far from where I live. 
and then he passed away. So fast forward a few more years and the estate, his daughter, Anitra Bascom, who's still alive and kicking, asked me if I wanted to continue on the third edition. And really, it hadn't really started much. It was just sort of collating a little bit. And I said, well, I'd be honored to. And then here we are in 2021. You've been around the ocean most of your life, even traveling the globe studying it. And you're also fluent in five languages, Kim. What is your favorite word for the ocean, waves, or some other aspect of one of Earth's most beautiful and powerful forces? Well, tsunami in Japanese, which has worked its way into English, is a pretty powerful word, awe-inspiring tsunami. It's, it's in, I think, virtually every country's vocabulary, and it means wave, harbor wave in Japanese. Seish is a wonderful word. It's a sloshing back and forth that you see in your bathtub or in a swimming pool. And seish is a wonderful word. There are a whole suite of (laughs) nautical terms. I actually threw some in the glossary. I put a glossary in this edition. So there's (laughs) one funny one. And tongue twister almost is the obliquity of the ecliptic. Try that at your next cocktail party (laughs) what is that the obliquity the ecliptic so the ecliptic is basically the plane in which the earth orbits or any celestial body orbits that's its ecliptic its orbital plane and so the earth's orbital plane around the sun is the ecliptic now when something is inclined such as the poles so our north and south poles do not point perpendicular to our ecliptic, to our rotation. That's why we have seasons. And so the obliquity of the ecliptic is about 23 and a half degrees now, but it changes a little bit about plus and minus half a degree, roughly a degree over the periods of about 20,000 years. But the obliquity of the ecliptic, and it's uh, the moon is inclined about five degrees to our orbital plane. And these complexities are part of what forms the tides that we observe at the coast. There's a section that's dedicated to the tides. The sun has 150 times the gravitational attraction for the earth as the moon. So why is the moon more responsible for our tides? Very good question. And it's explained in the chapter Tides and Satius, and there's actually a figure, figure 27, that is a new figure. So as the earth and the moon orbit around each other. It's not the moon just around the earth. We rotate around each other, sort of like a hammer thrower rotating with his ball of iron that's rotating around as he spins. We spin with the moon together around a center that's called the barycenter. And that happens once every lunar month, which is generically, visually it's 29.53 days. And So because of this orbit, there are some centrifugal forces. Imagine that hammer thrower with his head is going back, but his arms are going in the opposite direction. These are due to the centrifugal forces. Put that in one little box now. So why are the Earth's tidal experiences larger from the moon rather than the sun? It's because 
the variation in gravitational effects are larger from the moon than from the sun. The sun, so as the earth and the moon rotate, it's generically 200,000 miles to 230,000 miles. It might be off by a few tens of thousands of miles. But <laughs> what's the matter amongst friends unless you're going there? And so the variation is proportionately much larger than when we orbit around the sun. The moon and the earth orbit around the sun collectively around what's called our barycenter, the moon-earth system that rotates around the sun. Now that our distance from the sun only varies between 90 and 93 million miles during the course of a year. That's a long way. It's far away. The sun is gigantic. There's great gravitational forces, but the variation in the gravitational force is small. And the lunar gravitational forces change proportionately much more. And therefore, the moon exerts a greater gravitational force. Entwined in all this are some rotational centrifugal forces, but you have to read the book and look at the diagram to really get that. It's hard to describe in words. The tides are our planet's largest and longest waves. There are fundamental forces present in every wave, though, each struggling for control, gravity, buoyancy, and viscosity. What is viscosity's role with waves? Well, viscous force, it's in fluids, solids too, but that's geological time scales. But So viscous forces are when a fluid resists shear. So the more it resists shear, the higher the viscosity. So imagine a layer of water. Well, let's take the ocean, for instance, and the wind is blowing on it on the surface. The surface of the water starts to move, but the bottom doesn't quite start moving yet. It shears. And then you have what's called, oceanographers call it momentum transfer. It's the energy that's in the wind is being transferred into small surface currents and also pressure differences that form the waves. So this viscosity is a, a shear property. Now, surface tension is a property that causes liquids to want to pull together. It's like an elastic film. Difference in viscosity is demonstrated by if you pour a little bit of water on a glass surface, it'll puddle up. At the edges, it sort of buckles in. Whereas you pour something like alcohol, with a lower viscosity, it spreads out rapidly. That's simply because the two fluids have different viscosities. Pour honey on there, different. And it's a different surface tension. So the rate at which things flow and also the elastic force, if you will, that pulls a fluid together, the cohesiveness of the molecules actually are exhibited through the surface tension. One of the challenges for you as someone who, amongst other things, has studied waves throughout his career is how unpredictable they are. Considering that many of the contributions you made to this edition of this classic book have to do with climate change, how has climate change made the unpredictability of wave activity that much more difficult? So luckily, in the last 50 years, so the second edition was published roughly in 1980, so that's been 40 years 
in the intervening 40 years, there have been a massive increase in the number of satellites, the number of sensors, the connectivity of the data, the internet to merge it all together, and supercomputers to crunch the numbers. And what, these are peer-reviewed documents, publications. Statistically, in some areas, we see an increase in wind speed. Some areas super small, some decreases. So with the augmentation of data, these wonderful suites of sensors in space, on land and below the sea, we can now sort of piece together this puzzle of, oh, what's happening? So for instance, down in the South Pacific, the wave climate has changed a little bit because the weather patterns have changed. Now you just, in Austin, you just experienced a very substantial change in weather. <laughs> so that's a symptom of changing weather patterns. Now we don't need to auger into why or what, but things like that haven't really happened in the past. And on top of that, we have an increasing population in population density and electric grid in your case and water distribution and the whole system runs on distribution of energy because most people don't go down with buckets to pick up their water or chop down trees to make their water warm. So the system is sort of imploded. Now, what caused it? It's part of the environment has changed. And we haven't seen this combination of things in the history of humanity. So the winds have changed. Statistically, we know that. Very small differences in temperature can make large differences over long time periods. So for instance, we're having increased water temperatures, ocean temperatures influence the coral reef health, massive die-offs in many coral reefs around the world. This then leaves the land less protected from the waves and the waves inundate the shore, sometimes coming up over the reef into the lagoon, even onto, dry, onto the dry land and I'll use the word poisoning, but spoiling the aquifers. So the groundwater is then contaminated by larger waves that might be coming from a different direction. So small changes can have very large influence on how people behave, specifically, and I mentioned it in the book about Kiribati, there have been relocations of people for at least a decade because of such things. And of course, warmer waters also affect the amount of sea ice that exists. In a portion of this book that does cover sea ice, you tell the story from one of your many trips to the Arctic in the 1980s. What exactly happened? <laughs> well, you don't want to be caught on an ice flow when the waves start propagating. I think you're referring to one little vignette there where two of us went off to do some stuff. We were icebreaker at 1,000 nautical miles from anywhere. So you're not really in a good support system. And we went off with a snowmobile to do some stuff and we ended up several miles from the icebreaker. And the wind's blowing. It's cold. It's uh, way colder than it got in Austin. It was uh, close to 20 degrees below zero. And so when things are blowing, you don't hear things, in, especially when you're going in the snowmobile, but we, we would stop and, and do things drill holes in the ice to make oceanographic measurements through the ice. And we'd rest. It was hard work. It's hard work. And it's 
Plus, you don't want to freeze your lungs by breathing too heavily. So we would hear creaking. And long story made short, eventually the ice we were on started creaking more and more because the weather pattern had changed. And although we were on multi-year ice, it was like four to eight feet thick. And we would drill through these things. There were tiny fractures. And the wind direction changed, so it relaxed the ice. You know, if you push up against ice up against the shore, it all piles up. Well, when you pull it the opposite way, it starts to break apart. Well, now that it was broken apart, the long period swell started propagating in to the ice. And things started to creak and it started to fall apart. We were stuck up out there. The ship had some problems and we got marooned for a while. It's a character building <laughs> How long were we talking about with the while? I mean, that sounds pretty perilous there, considering the conditions that you were in. Several hours. Oh, my gosh. And remember that what happens when you, you have very cold air and when you part ice, you get what's called sea smoke comes up. So we couldn't see the ship anymore. The weather pattern changed. So we got it wasn't white out, but it was getting bad. We couldn't see where we were even. And you lose orientation. I completely, not in this occasion, but I've been in total whiteout in the Arctic where you cannot put, you can't tell where you're putting your foot. You fall over sometimes because you're, you're, you have no point of reference. So we were out there for several hours before the ship could start up its engines again. They had their own issues. They pulled an ice anchor out. It was an amazing thing. It was like a rubber band shooting a 400 pound anchor up against the side of the ship. Bam. Anyway, so eventually they figured out, oh, yeah, we've got two dudes out on the ice. What are we, <laughs> we going to do with these guys? How do we get to them? You know, because everything's changing at that point. So a sudden transitions on the ice can be experienced. Now that pulls it apart and does all sorts of things to it. We're sort of not very happy in the ship. They were floating, so they didn't care too much about us, I think. And eventually they came to our to our aid. But it, it wasn't the first time I've been marooned in life. There are other ones, but that was just, uh, <laughs> that was, it was a good, good experience. We may get to another treacherous experience or two of yours before it's all said and done, but I learned so much from reading through the 350 or so pages of Waves and Beaches, including that oil can actually calm the sea's surface. And there's a difference between fish and animal oils versus petroleum with regard to this effect. So what is happening when oil calms an ocean or sea? I remember earlier when I mentioned viscosity and surface tension. So what happens is the very creation of waves is at the capillary wave level. These are things about the width of your fingernail, you know, size of a date or something. And they're very small, but that is the very beginning of how the atmosphere starts to make waves with its wind. So the surface tension is what restores the shape of a capillary wave. It's not driven by gravity, it's driven by surface tension. And so what happens is the surface of the small wave wants to get flattened out again because the surface tension going, oh, wait, you're going way up there. You're deforming. I want to pull you back. It's a very strong force. It's actually stronger than gravity. That's why they call it capillary wave because it pulls up fluid in a capillary. That's why the, they actually measure it that way. Anyway, when the surface tension is different, using an oil, 
different oils have different surface tensions and hence different effect on the sea surface roughness. So Chip Cox, Charles Cox, uh, unfortunately also deceased. He was a first student that graduated from with um, Walter Monk, who was a pioneer in wave measurements, collaborated with Willard Bascom. And Chip Cox, one of his last papers, if not his last paper, was about how different oils affect small wave formation. And Chip was a superb guy. I knew him for decades. Great, unassuming guy, National Academy of Sciences, I think. Even the, Anyway, he had thought about surface roughness really since his graduate school days. He had devised a way of looking at the slope of waves by looking at the reflection of the waves. So if you're standing next to any body of water and the wind's blowing, you'll see little reflections. Well, the reason for that is the slope of the wave is great enough so that it's hitting the right angle from the sun shining down and it's reflecting back to you. So a different slope to the wave has a different reflection pattern and Chipcock studied that. So there's old mariners tales about putting oil to calm seas and it's been well documented in various ship captains logs. And what Chipcock showed was, Hey, this is not just sea stories. This is real. Hmm. So it does change this, the surface texture of the water and hence how much energy is put into the wave. Most people's experiences with waves have to do with shallow water waves. And shallow water waves react in three different ways as they approach the shore. They reflect, diffract, and or refract. What was the rough lesson that you, Kim, received with regard to refraction in April 2015? Oh, you're talking about being marooned again. Yeah, I was on a sailing vessel, a sailboat. We were sailing as a guy that has a PhD from Scripps, a friend of mine, on the research, what's sailing vessel, La Salsa. Many adventures on that boat. <laughs> and the captain's son had just graduated from high school well, in the process of graduating from high school and he took four of his buddies on a sea tour and myself and the guy's father were the adult <laughs> adults in there and so we were trying to show them all sorts of things we we're swimming in sea caves a fantastic experience and and so i came up with this idea since we've been at sea for at that time maybe four or five days that we We'd get dropped off. So the students and I would get dropped off on one side of the island and we'd hike to the southern side of the island. And then the La Salsa would come around and pick us up on the south side. Easy plan. Well, I think I was uh, intercepted by the internet access because we'd been out at sea and the five teenage boys hadn't had internet access for a while. And suddenly they discovered, oh, on the west side of Santa Cruz Island, you can have internet access. So I think they changed their minds. You know? So, so uh, you know, not one to be uh, meek about plans and execution. So I said, okay, look, I'm going to do this anyway. So is that all right? Check with the skipper. Yeah, it's good, good. We'll pick you up on the south side. So I went over the hill. I had some, a little bit of water. You know, it's only going to be a couple hours, you know, just sort of the infamous three-hour tour. 
<laughs> Gilligan's Island? Yeah, yeah, it was like sort of like Gilligan's Island. And so I hiked over, and as I um, reached the higher elevation of Santa Cruz Island on the west side, I noticed that the Santa Barbara Channel, which is just north of Santa Cruz Island, where the wind just howls through, was full of whitecaps off to the distance. And it was slowly changing. So I kept walking, looked back, and I go, holy mackerel, this is not going to be fun. So what had happened is the waves and the winds approached the island even more. The waves became larger. So the, and it's outlined in the book, larger, so longer period waves travel at higher speeds. So the bigger waves were coming first and because it was a distant storm and a local strong gale. And so when, by the time I got around the corner, so I'm in the lee of the island. So in the part where the wind doesn't blow, so windward and leeward, there were winds coming up over the hill and down. These are called catabatic winds. And they were colliding with the waves refracting, bending around the east side of Santa Cruz Island. And it was the perfect storm, so to say. You've got these 60, 70 mile an hour winds coming down off of the hill. It's about, I think it's about 1,500 or 2,000 feet high. And colliding in essence with large waves wrapping around, refracting around. And so the plan was not executable anymore because the waves on shore were too large. And so I ended up spending the night on the island. It's uninhabited in that portion of the island. There's no permanent residence of the island. There's no water. There's no food. Cell phones don't work. Now, luckily, yours truly had done a few expeditions in my life, took a radio <laughs> along with me, <laughs> and, and agreed in advance what channel we'd be on. And so I, I called and said, so what do you think it's like? And they go, mm, I don't know about this, you know? And so they, and we only had a small dinghy Well, they had a dinghy. I just had my backpack and hiking boots and shorts and a hat. So I ended up spending the night on the Island because they couldn't come. And it was very cold and it was, it was in the fifties, which is cold for California, but it's very cold. If you only have, light clothing and shorts and hiking boots. And so I managed to find some shelter, spent a pretty hypothermic night. I'm not sure how much I slept. I was definitely very, very cold as I walked back to the beach. I'd set up a sort of an hourly check. So if they had change of plans on the hour for about five minutes, we would be on the same radio channel. So they'd tell me, oh, they're going to do something or I even told him, look, if it persists, just sail away. I'll hike back to the other side of the island. And there's a ferry that goes back and forth every couple of days. And I, I, I can survive. It's not a problem. It's not like the end of the earth there. Greenland's a lot different. Those are different stories. So Santa Cruz Island is pretty accessible. But anyway, there I was with no food, no water. I had a little bit of you know, power bar kind of thing. And when I woke up, I was so cold. And then I realized that there's still swell coming in. The winds had died off and it was time for me to leave the island, but there wasn't any way because the dinghy could still not go ashore. So 
I'm hypothermic, really cold. I'm shivering. Uh, I would, during the night, I'd get up several times. And mind you, get up is basically standing up. I had nothing to cover me I, other than a few twigs here and there. And so I would jump up and down to get warm. And then I'd go back into my little hovel. And so I was really, really cold in the morning. Remember, 50 degrees is not too bad. But when it's blowing 40 and 50 knots, it is bone chilling. So I um, swam out. I took my clothes off and I swam out to the dinghy. I had asked him on the radio to bring a paper, uh, a couple of plastic trash bags. I swam back to shore. I'm super cold at this point. They brought my wetsuit, my fins. As I was doing it, I'm thinking, darn, I saw these there are two dead seals on the beach. Uh, definitely from shark bite, both of them. Hmm. And it's an area known for great whites. And I'm thinking, okay, it's dawn. I'm swimming out <laughs> from into this stuff. I'm frozen. My brain isn't even working right. And I swim, swim out to the dinghy. And I realize I can't get in the dinghy because it's so small. It's an eight-foot dinghy. And the swell was such that I could swamp the dinghy and then we'd both be stranded. So, and the boat was about a half mile offshore. So I had to swim. I put all my stuff, you know, the plastic bag and my backpack and radio and all that in the, in the dinghy and, and the skipper rode the dinghy back to the boat and I swam and I'm thinking great white man in gray suit, (laughs) 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 but I was cold. I was very cold. Anyway, there's a little story for you. I got to tell you, you are an adventurer with a capital A. And even though you told some stories about you taking a risk and ending up in a perilous situation as a result, I have to imagine that there are enough stories where you take a risk and get to experience or encounter something pretty glorious to balance out every time that you felt like Gilligan on a deserted island. Well, (laughs) let's just say I've been lucky. Okay. And there's also the adage, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So it's not as if I depart with no plans. I did some off-road motorcycle riding in Mexico and I wanted to transit a little section of the beach there at low tide. I was riding with a French friend of mine, just two of us. He didn't know how to navigate, but that's another story. (laughs) And uh, I had five plans of how to transit that stretch of about 15 nautical miles of coastline that I had never heard of anyone doing even on off-road motorcycles. So um, I had five plans. So we executed the second one, which ended up, we put a couple of motorcycles in pongas in these fishing boats and they took us to Santa Catarina, but that's another story. But I haven't been always lucky. Um, I, <laughs> in a funny manner, I ended up in the hospital one time for 12 days uh, with a simple bicycle accident because and I was only going like two or three miles an hour. And there's a big gap in the road. And I was just, bam, hmm. uh, pneumothorax. And there I was. So, you, you know, you don't have to be in a precariously well-known, dangerous situation to have a fatal accident. Hmm. And you, you're prepared as well as you can be. But being psyched out by the what-ifs will remove adventure and there's an old adage it's not adventure until something goes wrong 
That's a pretty good point there, and I appreciate how many different plans you consider in your head when you embark on something. That is crucial in understanding how to get yourself out of a bad situation. The surf is essentially a result of too much energy and too little water. As a wave breaks, the sands at the bottom make them plunge, spill, or surge. Plunging breakers are generally the most impressive of these reactionary waves. Why do waves plunge? You have what's called a spilling wave. That's where the bottom gently shoals. So shoaling is becoming less deep. So it becomes shallow. So as the bottom becomes gradually shallow, gradually more shallow, the wave goes, "Eh, you know, a little bit too much energy here. I'm going to, I'm slowing down. The top wants to move faster. Okay, I'm going to spill off the top. Now change that slope of the bottom to twice that, and the wave goes, oh, I'm going to get rid of a whole bunch of energy much faster than with a, a gently shoaling bottom. And so it, it leaps a little bit more forward. And then the extreme case, and you see this on coral reefs and some areas where you have offshore structures, I'll call it, could be a coral reef, it could be a sunken ship that they've made for surfing, a place for surfing. And that's where a deep water wave suddenly impacts a rapidly changing depth of water. And these just wall up. You've seen photographs from Fiji and terrifying spots. It's just the bottom is rising much, much faster. And the the wave goes, okay, I can't contain all this energy. And oh, by the way, the top of the wave is still moving fast. And the bottom can't get enough water back to complete the orbital cycle. So, hey, let's go gangbusters and just die all at once in turbulence. What's your favorite aspect of a wave to study, Kim? Above, at surface level, or below the wave? (laughs) Well, one of the sweetest spots to be is uh, like body surfing right in the curl. And it doesn't last very long. It might only last for a a fraction of a second. And there's a famous body surfing spot called the wedge off of Newport beach in California. <laughs> it's disaster. Every wave looks like a disaster, but the exhilaration is extreme uh, running. So windsurfing, when you go down the line, as they call it is extremely exhilarating. You have, especially when you have an offshore wind, because there's a wind compression. So imagine if you cup your hand and that's representing the curling wave and the wind's blowing into the cup of your hand, that wind suddenly goes, well, I can't go through this wave. So I'm going to jack up. I'm going to go vertical. And the wind speed increases drastically. That's what allows albatrosses and seabirds to soar for weeks and months on end. And when you're in that little sweet spot of increased wind and a peaking wave and you shoot down the line going 30 miles an hour. It's pretty exhilarating until something goes wrong and you stop all of a sudden. So, you know, it's a, it's a trade-off between risk reward, but it's exhilarating no matter where you are in a wave. Your adventures as an oceanographer, well, I guess as a guy who just loves the thrill of sport, does include surfing from time to time. This book lists 11 important features of a good surfing area, including number 11, that the area should be remote to reduce the number of surfers so you're not having to sit in a lineup for two hours in between runs. What do you love about surfing, Kim? 
in one of the little vignettes there, I think I, I write, surfing is an addiction to the rush of air, to the glide on water, and to the uncentered flow of wave energy. It's a tribal co codependence on the power that moves the stars. It's just this, I don't know, it's, um, <laughs> you just got to be there sometimes. It's, it's poorly described in words. When you realize that you're doing something that's really driven by the, by the sun, and the sun creates the wind, the wind creates the waves, and here you are on this natural energy wave that is super fun and just keeps going and you kick, you finish a wave and you, you go, Oh, okay. One more. And you go back out and then you paddle out. You're, you're waiting and you go, okay, this can be my last one. And here comes one. You catch it. It's not quite right. Wasn't that go. Ah. You turn around, you paddle back out, you do another one. And it, it, it's, it's addictive. And it's not, there's a, sort of a level playing field oh, there are some competitive aspects to surfing in some areas but it's really the human with a little bit of technology called a surfboard or windsurfer or you know fins or whatever you're using to ride the wave and it's nature and a human a little bit of technology in there and it's a pure thing it's um, perhaps like downhill skiing in a certain sense it is you know downhill skiing is a gravity driven event it's it's a sport that's driven by gravity right if you didn't have gravity you couldn't go down the hill likewise the wave is propagating forward it's restoring force the ones you surf is it's gravity and so you're really it's a gravitational sport the wave is pushing you forward you're trying to go down the slope of the wave and the surface of the wave is trying to pull you back, so to say, right? And so with a balance between drag and, and the slope of the wave, you move forward and it's perfect harmony. And there's something, there's something pure about that. I'm guessing just about everyone has seen a picture or video of surfers challenging maybe the most well-known wave on the planet off the coast of Nazarene, Portugal. Why is this wave so massive? Nazare in Portugal is on my bucket list, not surf there. I'm probably too old for that one, but certainly to go there and observe it. And what makes the wave at Nazare special is that you have the North Atlantic you know, that you have large storms that originate in the North Atlantic and they propagate their energy propagates out and the fetch, the distance over which the wind blows is, long enough to create substantial waves. And there's a relationship between the distance over which wind blows and the period of which it, for which it blows and the size of the wave it can create. And all those things are just right in the North Atlantic. They're good in the Pacific too. And there are other spots, but nothing quite like Nazare that we've discovered yet. And what Nazare has is a submarine canyon. So you spoke about refraction. So basically when these large waves come out of the North Atlantic or even come straight West, they can refract into the submarine canyon off Nazare. And those combined with the waves that are not refracted. So they're basically collision, colliding collisions of the same wave. So energy that came from the Atlantic 
some of it refracted, comes around the corner into the submarine canyon, uh, if you will, it hooks left. And then the other part of that energy is coming from the north uh, northwest. And these two jack up the wave and they, it peaks up into 100 foot monsters. And it is incredible. I've only seen on video, it's on my bucket list. Is it on yours? Absolutely it is. Honestly, I'm a bit surprised that you haven't at least visited, if not tried to surf it in your younger days, considering all the different places that you've been on this planet. Well, I, I would never categorize myself as an expert surfer. Okay. Biggest I've done is 12, 14 feet. Oh my gosh, even that's impressive. And I've even body surfed those. Maybe windsurfing, maybe a little bit bigger, but those are a little bit easier to escape from when you're windsurfing. But so I've never been an expert surfer. So I wouldn't challenge myself, even in my younger day, to do something like Nazare. Maybe in my younger day, if people knew about Nazare, I might have been compelled and would have just gone off in another crazy direction. But uh, <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I, I surf. I, first surfed on a surfboard when I was probably about 12. But I, I've never been like a, you know, daily uh, Dom Patrol person. Although when I go to Mexico and other places, sometimes I might surf, you know, two, three times in a day. But for the most part, I wouldn't call myself an expert surfer. Gotcha. It's interesting that the first time you got on a surfboard is at the age of 12. It reminds me that Willard gave a pretty good description of the first time he saw a wave that really opened his eyes to their beauty and power. Now, he was actually, I want to say he was in his early 20s in college at the time and going out there to study the waves. Do you recall the first wave that had this sort of impact on you? Yeah, Willard first saw the Pacific with John Isaacs. And John Isaacs and Willard Baskin were great pals. I think John Isaacs died in about 1980. And that left a lasting impression. When now I'm much younger than Willard. And my memories of waves really, I crossed the Pacific when I was nine months old on a ship. So I've been exposed to large waves all of my life. And there are some fantastic breaks. I mean, you know, Hawaii has some fantastic breaks. Um, you know, you go to the Southern Ocean and they're frightful. Southern Ocean is around Antarctica. Um, so it rings Antarctica and it has an unlimited fetch that so goes all the way around. But specific breaks, uh, I'm in awe of all large waves. It's just, it's humbling. And even though I've been in, in associated with the ocean basically most of my life, I won't say all my life because my life's not over yet, um, every wave is a little different. And I can be, I can, I can stand and look at one foot high waves because there's always something to observe. And I can look at a gigantic wave from afar and just imagine what storms must have created it a thousand or 2000 miles ago. Even there are storms that originate in the Antarctic that propagate along 
the New Zealand coast and make it all the way to Southern California. Hmm. And so there's all sorts of wonderful waves. I, I can't see a specific time. I, there's just, uh, I was too young when it started. Sandy beaches make up about 30% of ice-free shorelines. Are waves usually adding to or taking away from sandy beaches? That's an excellent question. Let's take an island called the Isle of Man in the Irish Sea. One side of the, and they have a climate sea level change plan. So one side of the island, uh, Isle of Man, is having deposition. So sediments being deposited. So those people on that side of the island, they're happy. On the other side, it's being eroded. So sediments move all over, you know, new continents or not new continents, but continents are still rising in some areas, sinking in other new sediments are coming down rivers to coastal regions. So sediments always moving tides, currents, waves. So whether or not it's there is not a global deposition and a global erosion number because it's on one side of the island, you can have one thing happening. The other side, something else can be happening. Now, in Southern California, we have a lot of erosion because it's low-lying in many areas, small slope, and dune erosion, so coastal erosion, is a big problem because of multiple things, not least of which the pumping water out of aquifers, so groundwater, hydrocarbons in some areas, and also sand mining. So upstream, some municipalities sell sand mining rights, which decreases the sediment flow to the coastal regions. And, but yet at the same time, they may pay other people to do beach nourishment. So it's sort of schizophrenic. A lot of people have seen pictures and videos of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Is there hope with this floating and growing pile of garbage, Kim? It's massive. And, you know, humans can clean it up. But the most important thing is let's stop throwing the things in rivers and coastal zones that made it in the first place. So we need to change our behavior. So the garbage patches are in the large oceanic gyres and incredible amounts. I mean, I've, I've sailed through them. I've definitely encountered plastics in places where I never thought I'd see it or discarded cans and bottles. But we need to change our behavior. How do we interact with the very much at hand, the ubiquitous plastic bag, glass bottle, all these things are discarded and they don't make it, they don't all make it in the landfill. And we have to give people rationale for why we need to change our behavior and we can clean up the problem. We can remediate things. You know, there are super fun sites that we've managed to clean up, but we're pretty stupid to have the super fun sites in the first place. Our behavior wasn't corrected in time. So likewise, the great garbage patches are symptoms of our behavior, which can be changed. It's not a difficult job. We just need to all adhere to certain norms. And it would help if governments helped instruct us in what we can do on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be regulation. You have to do this and you have to do this. It's not limiting your rights. It's just simply, if you want to go to a beach and not see the plastic, hey, you know, just change your behavior. And if everyone else does a little bit like that, gee, 10, 20 years, it'll all be good.
It never ceases to amaze me to be reminded that there are 750,000 miles of subsea cables that allow us international internet access, and that number continues to grow. First of all, how does the salinity of the oceans and also all the creatures floating around these cables not mess with the connection more, and what impact does this have on our seas? I think there's about 100 breaks a year, so it's not as if you put these things there and they, <laughs> they're there forever. Okay. No, they, they need a fair amount of maintenance and there are ships with the specific mission of repairing submarine cables. So um, in the, so each one of these cables, and it's interesting, you can just Google submarine cable cables and it'll pop up at you and you'll be amazed at the spaghetti of submarine cables leading all around the world. Um, so each one of those cables has an entry point and an exit point in and out of the sea and that crosses the surf zone. So it might be tunneled underneath or go through some conduit, but somehow that conduit or that tunnel had to be created on the beach face. And that's where that's the most hazardous area for these cables and companies like Facebook, Amazon, I think Microsoft even, um, these, these companies are funding more and more fiber optic cables because it's the most well, right now it's still the most efficient way of getting information from one point to the other and information is king it's more valuable than oil you know, you're in texas hydrocarbons massive industry yet what's more valuable and you look at the the market value of amazon way beyond exxon and that's because the information is extremely valuable. So if you have a conduit, submarine cable, suddenly, hey, we're in business. It's like Carnegie building railroads or steel. You know, if you've got a conduit to transport goods and information in the 21st century, you've got a product. Is there anything commonly attributed to man-made climate change that you believe to be more a result of the ebb and flow between land and sea? Well, the, it's how humans interact with the interface of the land and sea. So, for instance, I mentioned sand mining earlier, and that's really, you know, humans are intertwined in the climate change process. So when you have more people living in an area, their burden, if you will, on the local ecosystem is higher and that influences, you know, how estuaries or mangrove swamps or, you know, even the reef off of Kiribati in the South Pacific, how it is maintained and how it is degraded. So the, the easiest thing, not easiest, the most evident thing is carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it's very, very clear that the relationship between carbon dioxide and the atmosphere and global climate, I'll say global temperatures, is a very strong relationship. So the higher the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the warmer the planet gets. And we have records going back millions of years. And those are from gases in glaciers, so trapped in glaciers, and from sediments in the ocean, from tree rings, 
a whole bunch of stuff. There's uh, some chemical isotope, the isotope stuff from um, oxygen ratios, too nerd-like for here. And these things all tell the same story. They say our planet is getting warmer and it's changing at a rate that we've never seen before. We don't have anything in our record to see carbon dioxide in the atmosphere moving this fast ever. And the last time it was higher than 300 parts per million was several million years ago. So humans have been around, you know, throw a dart, say 100,000, you know, Neanderthal, 500,000. Okay, throw a dart. Say we've been around for a million years, even 5 million years. You know what? Never since Homo sapiens have been on the face of this earth have they ever experienced such a high carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere. So that's something different. And we know from all these other records that when the carbon dioxide goes up, global temperatures go up. So what are we going to do about it? We need to do something because this is really an existential question for major portions of the planet. You know, people will become climate nomads or climate refugees. It's already happened in some areas, you know, Kiribati, they're moving to Australia. Uh, so if we don't do anything, the long-term repercussions are quite clear. Any coastal city, Jakarta, you know, mouth of Mekong Delta, the Ganges, Brahmaputra Delta in India and Bangladesh, these major deltas of the world, Mississippi River Delta, all in jeopardy. It doesn't take many inches of sea level change to completely devastate coastal life in some areas. As an example, the beach slope. So beach slope is basically how much a beach goes down versus how much it goes out. So beach slope one in a hundred would mean that you have a, let's use feet, a uh, one foot change in the elevation of the beach versus a hundred feet out to sea, right? So that's one in a hundred slope. Well, if you get a six inch change in sea level, that means, oh, let's see, half of 100 feet, that's 50 feet. If you're living on the coast there, you're going to lose 100 feet horizontally of your land. And you're not only going to lose your land, you're going to lose your mineral rights too. And I'm not, this isn't hypothetic. It's already been litigated in federal court. People have already lost their land in lowlands because of the change of where the definition, not the definition, change of where low, low water is, or mean low water, it's different definitions. But as land is eroded, the mineral rights below it become federal government. So it's not hypothetical. I wanted to end today's interview with a couple of questions. The first has to do with your good friend and mentor and the author of the first edition of this book, Willard Bascom. What's your favorite memory of Willard? Oh, reciting poetry back and forth. No, he, he loved Rudyard Kipling. As a matter of fact, he wrote another book uh, with a lot of um, editorial stuff on. Uh, so changed, he actually changed some of the poems of Rudyard Kipling. <laughs> but, but we used to recite things back and forth. And we go, oh, I haven't heard that one. And I haven't heard that one. one. One that he taught me was, let's see, it goes something like this. When the 
when the ship goes womp and a wiggle in between and the steward falls into the soup tureen, you may know if you haven't guessed that you're 40 north by 30 west. It's like, <laughs> it's just, oh, you, you get these things. So uh, Willard was wonderfully diverse in his interests, had a great command of big picture. And he worked in, um, in Southern California on some sewage discharge issues for a better part of a decade. So he, he dealt with all sorts of things, big picture. I mean, he, he worked, he worked with Nelson Rockefeller and some little project to figure out how to do a satellite launch using nuclear explosions. My God. <laughs> big, dig this big hole in the ground, you know, put your load in there and blow off a nuclear explosion. Was, you know, they never did it, but, and he had all sorts of things like that. A, um, a bridge across the Strait of Gibraltar that would be buoyancy. So instead of running pilots all the way down to the bottom, it would be pretty much like you see an offshore floating platform like the Deepwater Horizon that sunk out there. So it'd have a, a buoyant structure that would support a bridge. And then they'd have some cable stays that keep it in place. And that was, it was a big thinker. Uh, but yet he could have sit and look at a beach, little grains of sand and, and in wonderment. And rightfully so, after Willard passed away, his ashes were put on the beach here in San Diego at La Jolla Shores. So he's in the longshore drift. He's in the, he's, he's in the swash zone there. So you can go visit him anytime in the swash. <laughs> and last question, you are an adventurer. Adventures lead to stories, some of which you've told in this chat. kind of hope you write a memoir at some point because it seems like you have plenty more to let us know about. Earlier in today's conversation, you mentioned Greenland as a place that you've gone through some pretty crazy things before. Would you mind telling me a story from Greenland? Oh, let's see. I went from Greenland. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you one. Yeah, we had a helicopter break one time. We're doing so. We dropped off with a helicopter on the edge of the ice. We're doing what's called marginal ice zone measurements. So this in the 80s when, you know, Cold War was on and nuclear submarines were playing all sorts of games, both Soviet and American, in the Arctic. And so the Navy put a lot of money into research out there. Anyway, so we're working in the marginal ice zone, which is basically where what's called the return Atlantic current mixes with the water that comes down off the coast of Greenland. And there's a little island called Spitsberg and belongs to Norway, Russia. And so that flows down and it merges with the North Atlantic waters. And it's extremely complex acoustically. So submarine tactics and all that are difficult to develop. And so we're working on doing profiles and we'd fly out. We first we'd get an icebreaker in Iceland and then go north. So it was, <laughs> we, 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 I think I made it up to 83 degrees north latitude. Wow. And we'd be set off with, from the icebreaker, we'd be, go out on helicopters and um, we'd fly out and make observations and then they'd drop us off. And I became a bit of an expert in ice reconnaissance. So the pilots trusted me enough to say, yeah, go land there. And so they'd 
sit down, we'd offload, usually two of us would offload um, a battery powered winch and an oceanographic instrument and lower things down. Well, the helicopter let us off, you know, we're a thousand miles from any inhabited land and goes off and, and it's supposed to continue doing ice recon with the pilot and co-pilot, but it lands on the next ice floe. And I go, Hmm, this doesn't look good. And I'd already been on a, on into the Arctic quite a few times with the guy I was with his first trip, his first time on the ice. <laughs> and, and so he, he wanted to be sort of in control. He wanted to, they'd give us shotguns uh, for polar bear and they'd give us a radio so we'd have comms communications. And so he had this shotgun and he had the, the radio. And I say, Hey, let's just call him Bob. Hey, Bob, uh, see if we can raise a helicopter because it's just set down on the ice floe half a mile away. It's open water here. We're not going to get to it. Find out what's happening. And as we're looking at it, you know, the rotor starts to slow down, which is a big no-no. You know, we're 20 miles or more from the icebreaker. There's no way that we're going to make it back alive. And I say, okay, Bob, go, you know, raise them on the radio. He goes, where's the radio? I, go, I don't know where you got it. So he goes out there. It's like minus 20. You know, he goes, gets a radio. The radio's dead because of the oh, batteries no. are too cold, right? And so we have no comms. We're on the ice. Got ice, um, you know, shotgun. We got this instrument down in the water. And along the edge, I noticed there are polar bear tracks, uh, fresh ones. And I don't know if you've ever seen a polar bear track, but they are large i mean they are the size of a big like two dinner plates they oh are big gosh. and so i go hey bob this isn't looking good <laughs> dead helicopter no comms and fresh polar bear track <laughs> so i go okay um you know take the take the radio stuff it inside your parka warm it up we're gonna figure out what's going on so uh then the then the turbine it was a turbine helicopter turbine powered helicopter that the, the turbine stops rotor stopped and then i see the crew jump out start looking around <laughs> this is not looking good oh, at all no. so finally the radio gets uh, warmed up and we get comms and they say yeah we've we've had something was weird and we had to land it and shut it off and so we're a long way from everywhere well i mean a long way from the icebreaker and the icebreaker is along even further away you know, halfway to nowhere. Um, and so I don't know how long it was, hours. Uh, they had to mobilize second helicopter to, uh, to come to our location. And, uh, and we're limited to how far we can go with one helicopter. So I think we were right at the edge of one helicopter, which I think was like 20 miles, nautical miles. And so there we are sitting on this ice floe, polar bear tracks, radio working now, dead helicopter. So they say they're bringing out the other helicopters. The other helicopter comes out after a while. I'm going like this. I don't really like the way this is feeling. I see seal popping up in the lead, uh, you know, so marine life, a seal popping up. And that's like, hmm, now I know why those polar bear tracks are here. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, you know, we're no different. And they're the top of the feed chain. Food chain. And uh, even with the shotgun, you're, if you, I'm not a marksman 
by any stretch of the matter. Uh, and what is that like say, a mosquito bite for a polar bear? Yeah, they have these, uh, I think they're called zero. It's like one slug. So shotgun shell with one slug in it, not BBs, but one slug. Uh-huh. And that's what they give you for the bear guns. And they say that if you're an expert marksman, uh, don't head aim for the head. You aim for this chest area, sort of be right below our neck for us. And if you hit them there in that little spot, like a one foot square, if you hit them there, you've got a 50% chance of disabling them. <laughs> Jeez. So I'm going like, I don't want any part of this gun, you know? And, <laughs> and so I, um, so eventually a helicopter shows up and um, they, now they've got the crew members from the first helicopter, the science crew, myself and Bob. Um, so f- four of us load into the second helicopter and with our gear, I mean, got this, you know, at the time, $10,000 piece of gear, which is, you know, like $30,000 today down there. <clears throat> you know, I want to pull it back up because I don't lose my $30,000, but I don't want to get my ass eaten by a polar bear either. So, <laughs> so jump in the, get in the helicopter. They fly us back to the, to the coast, to the, it was Coast Guard icebreaker. And um, so they, they go, okay, now we got to go back with an icebreaker to go get the disabled helicopter. Well, unfortunately, they forgot to put a, a, a beacon on it so that they didn't know where it was. Oh, and no. at sea, when you're on sea ice, everything is drifting around. So it wasn't at the latitude longitude where they left it. And it took them a day, took them full 24 hours to find it again. And then the, one of the most ballsy moves I've ever seen anyone do, they offloaded a, a pilot. He got... Well, what had happened was a tail rotor gearbox had sheared. So that's pretty deadly. If you know anything about helicopters, you start rotating around and you just die. Pretty much you die. So luckily we're at low altitude when it happened. So the guy, they they had two helicopters. So they dismantled the helicopter that had flown back to the icebreaker, took out the tail tail rotor gearbox, planted it into the the bad helicopter, not knowing what caused the shearing of the uh, tail rotor gearbox. And with only pilot, he did the world's shortest flight, spun it up, pulled back on the collective, bam, set it up maybe 15 seconds from takeoff to landing, shut the thing off. Because the thing could just, it could blow up, it could do anything. But it's rather embarrassing when you have to go back to shore and you go, well, you know, Admiral, uh, we left with two helicopters. Uh, we came back with one. Where's the other one? <laughs> uh, not really, not really sure where it is. <laughs> and, and there are plenty of other stories, but anyway. Okay, so you have to write a memoir at this point, correct? Well, other people have asked me about that, and I've, I have. Luckily, since I was 16, I have kept records of what I've done. So I won't call them journals, but. Some of them are journal-like, but most of them are where I am, what I'm doing, and what's the significance of where I am. So there might be big gaps of even months where there's nothing of significance to write down. But luckily I have, oh, I don't know, I think I have four or five of these books already from the time I was 16 that chronicles all this. That's incredible. All the more help that you'll have in writing this future New York Times bestseller, Kim. 
<laughs> well, well, let's get through waves and beaches first. And, and Patagonia has been great in their interactions. The book designer, Christina Speed, and the main editor, John Dutton, and uh, many others were McKenna Goodman, also uh, editor, uh, were Jane um, Sievert, the picture editor. So it was a, a collective effort to make Waves and Beaches appear on our horizon. Oh, there are so many beautiful pictures, stories, and info in this book, and it's clear to me that Willard would be proud of your efforts here. Thank you so much for that, and thank you for the time today, Kim. Yeah, Waves and Beaches is really, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's a hybrid between Baskin and McCoy, and hopefully it'll make you look at the ocean in a whole new way. And I sort of feel it's a combination of equations and emotions. Very well put. Thanks, man. Great. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.